Well, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is our third try at uh, Behind the Stories with Clark County Today. I'm Jacob Graneman, and I'm so excited to be here today with our um, kind of de facto transportation reporter, John Lee. Um, he's been working with us uh, for several months now, really digging into a lot of the, the, the things that surround transportation as it affects all of us, you know, because pretty much all of us have to get from point A to point B at some point, right, John? Absolutely. So, so yeah, so I, we're kind of just going to dive into what it's been like over the last, you know, 12, 13 months. Obviously, COVID has been a huge part of our lives during that time. And kind of what has changed um, for you? You're um, a part of so many different uh, groups and observing and, and, and reporting on so many different elements of transportation in Southwest Washington and also as it connects to Oregon. What do you think has been the biggest things that you've just witnessed over the last year from seeing it kind of go maybe lower priority now back to a higher priority? What are some of the big takeaways for you? Well, so many moving parts and it's a great discussion. Um, what so many people have found backing up was Southwest Washington Clark County had roughly 70 to 75,000 people commuting into Oregon to work. And so that wow. was a huge number of people crossing the two bridges we've got to go get a paycheck. They work all day. They pay their Oregon income taxes. Right. Then they come home in the evening. And the in a sense, the making lemonade from lemons, the delight is that an awful lot of people learned that they could be a productive employee from home. Right, right. And so from a transportation perspective, we went from parking lots on I-5, right. I-205, I-84, close to 12 hours a day to free-flowing traffic. People could get wherever they wanted to go fairly expeditiously, very few traffic jams. And so the demand for transportation infrastructure dropped precipitously, number one. Number two, we also found in the same vein, demand for transportation on mass transit fell off a cliff. Right. Um, and of course, part of that related to COVID is the reality of being inside tightly packed with a whole lot of other people. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Understandably makes everybody scary. And all they had to do was the example of New York, New York City. Right. With the highest COVID rates in the nation. And you got the subway right there. Because yeah. everybody depends on the subway and to a lesser extent, the buses there. And so people have avoided it. And you saw 60, 70% declines in transit ridership. Wow. Uh, from that angle of transportation. Of course, I'm an airline pilot, so mass transit, if you will, was right. in my background. Right, right. And the airlines absolutely got hammered uh, yeah. with almost nobody flying anywhere. In part, people were laid off. Businesses having people work from home instead of business meetings occurring across sure. the country or across the world. And so now, finally, you begin to see the resurgence in the economy, the use of transportation, but it's still a long ways off. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting you touched on how there's, you know, we have very different forms of transportation. I mean, we have everything from ferries to planes and everything in between, and all of it was affected by the pandemic. I don't think we've ever seen a situation that has you know, cross departmentally, if you will, affected all forms of transportation. So then I guess kind of what are some of the things that you've observed that maybe became uh, clear or even 
were just more like surprising. Like I, I, I know one that everyone has always talked to me is like, wow, the traffic is like non-existent now, right? <laughs> you know, instead of five hours of traffic, I I'm, you know, I'm there and back in 20 minutes. And I even remember driving into Portland to do something one time. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's no cars. There's nobody here. And it was on a weekday during the pandemic it was earlier in the pandemic. And so I think, you know, things like that, things that we didn't notice and that now we're noticing and it's maybe looking at trends and how they've been changed by all that and how that also impacts the, the tax dollars and the funding that goes into all of these uh, transportation methods, whether it's a road or a bus or a bridge or whatever, you know, kind of touch on that. What's, what have been some of the things that have been surprising or maybe laid bare a little bit by the pandemic? Well, and so I went to high school and college in Portland. I left for 11 and a half years in the military, uh, was delightfully able to come back into Portland in 1990. And I can remember in those first couple of years, if I wanted to take care of business or meet friends in downtown Portland, I could literally leave at 4.30 and still beat the evening traffic back across the river to Vancouver wow. um, and not be pulling my hair out. It was not a parking lot. And of right. course, we know pre-pandemic that if you didn't leave downtown Portland by 2-ish, 2.15, yeah, at the latest, forget it. You were going to get stuck. And the closer you got to 4 o'clock, I-84, I-5, I-205, a huge nightmare just in terms of the time that got sucked out of people's lives right, and right. that you spent frustrated in traffic idling and all of that. And so in a sense, the pandemic has shown that when demand dropped precipitously, traffic could move more freely. Sure. And so advancing that forward to what do we need to do in a transportation system, you have supply and demand. And what is the demand? Well, sure. The honest answer going back to the 1980s was regional planners for transportation looked at the growth of the population, the density, and all of that, and they said, we need to create two new freeway systems mm. here in the Portland metro area. Right. And so they moved forward and they created the eastern half of that ring, which was Interstate 205. Mm -hmm. And I-205 and the Glen Jackson Bridge opened in December 1982. And the plan was to immediately then move forward and build a western half of the ring, a western bypass, because not everybody wants to go into the core of downtown. Right, right. And every city, I've been blessed to travel all over the world. Every major city has one or multiple ring roads. Mm -hmm. One of those tales I tell is I've been in Beijing, China, 20, 30 million people. Right. They have eight ring roads wow. in their inner core. <laughs> but it is not everybody wants to go into the inner core. And so we like options and all of that stuff. Right. And so we were supposed to build our western half of the ring road. And it makes sense. But the politics didn't work out in the area. They stopped building it. And of course, today, you're talking 10, 20, 30, 40 times the cost for what it would have been right. had they gone ahead and moved it. Uh, there are actually maps showing the completed ring road for 1990 was the plan. Interesting. And how much better we would have been. But December 
1982, I-205 opened, and our regional transportation councils got wonderful information, and they showed the drop mm-hmm. of traffic on I-5 and using the Interstate 5 bridge right. because people had another option. Right. They went to I-205, and basically it took a decade for traffic levels on I-5 to grow back up to where it was before we opened that bypass. Interesting. And so some people will say, see, it didn't provide transportation relief in the long term. Mm-hmm. You maybe had a decade, but blah, 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 blah. Investing in transportation doesn't work. No, it absolutely works. The challenge was right. our economy grew. Right. We had a lot more people grow, move to the area. We were booming for a lot of good reasons, and we were a very desirable location. Macro sense when they opened the Glen or were building the Glen Jackson Bridge in I-205 in 1980, the Portland region had 1.3 million people. Right. Here we are 40 years later, 2.6 million people. Right. We've more than doubled, yeah. almost tripled. Yeah. I mean, we 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 we've got do you think if the population doubled, the number of cars on the road right. doubled? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, demand has gone up. And hence, since we haven't added major transportation infrastructure, you naturally have traffic congestion. Mm. And Portland has earned the dubious honor of being the eighth worst in the nation for traffic congestion. Interesting. Until last year, tying it back right. to COVID. What happened? Oh, everybody said, <laughs> guess what? We now are 12th worst in the nation. Oh, we've, improved we've improved by improved four by matches. Four <laughs> and the answer to that is, yeah, because we had such a, from a work perspective, sad right. decline in the number of people using our transportation facilities that other locations in the nation that didn't have that much of a decline right. now look worse. <laughs> right, right. So it's all perception. Yeah, right. all perception. I mean, every... Everywhere in the U.S., obviously, shut down and varying mm-hmm. impacts on transportation. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, we got a little bit better, but it's just because others got worse. Right. And now traffic levels are going back up, and we're starting to see, oh, avoid I-5 at 7 to 8 o'clock right. in the morning. Right. Or coming back home, you know, for a little while there, you could be over in the Portland side doing business, shopping, whatever, and hey, it's 3.30 and I made pretty good tracks getting home instead of <laughs> I used to be out of there by two, right. you know? And and so that's where we're headed. And so at the end of the day, people's most valuable commodity is time. Right. That's what they value the most, whether it's time with work, time with their family, taking care of business, whatever. And the less time they spend in traffic congestion, it's the most precious thing to them. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I think too, that's kind of bleeds into what I wanted to know next is, where are we at now? Like uh, many of these topics we just touched on with the ring road and some of these developments that um, have been kicked around for, you know, at this point, decades, what are some of the proposals and ideas that are being, you know, exchanged right now between state legislatures, between local lawmakers and cities and all of the people that work to maintain and, and are supposed to enact, you know, a healthy transportation system. What are, what are some of the things we've learned over the last several months and kind of where do we stand on some of the big ticket items? So there's an hour long conversation, my friend. <laughs> right, right. Um, and the Spark Notes version. <laughs> yeah. Um, so amazing. So most people here in the Portland metro area and in Southwest Washington know there's a huge conversation about replacing the Interstate Five Bridge. Right. And it is tied to many facets of it's an old bridge. 
with an asterisk that's appropriately discussed tied to how much money do we have? It goes back to the failed Columbia River crossing effort. Mm -hmm. And in the macro sense, the CRC, not John Lee, but an Oregon state Supreme court judge heard a lawsuit and appropriately said the CRC was nothing more than a light rail project in search of a bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, Federal transportation officials told elected officials in viewing the CRC, ah, we understand what we're really offering federal money for is a light rail project and you're just going to put it on top of a bridge. Right. But they, even the feds knew it was a light rail project. So we have advanced forward now, huge discussions between the two states about replacing the interstate bridge and how do we get the money? The Columbia River Crossing was a $3.5 billion project Mm -hmm. at the time. And so in reality, the bridge itself, and this is one of those where I smile when I think of my dear friend, Tiffany Couch. Mm -hmm. She's a forensic accountant. She got all the numbers and the estimates from the Columbia River Crossing project. The bridge itself was only $792 million right. on a $3.5 billion project. Wow. So you're looking at less than a quarter of the cost was actually replacing a bridge. The rest of it was $850 million was light rail and then a lot of pork barrel spending, mm-hmm. intersections for Oregon, intersections to Washington, but none of which had to do with the cost of the actual bridge. So could we propose a very cost-effective bridge replacement if that's what we'd wanted to do? And the answer is yes. Where are we now? The two state legislators have created a bi-state legislative committee. They've been talking for over two years now. And so they have hired outside consultants. Right. WSP. No, it's not the Washington State Police. Right. (laughs) Always have to have that caveat with them. Yeah. Um, They're a firm. They've been hired not only to oversee and be the lead consultant on the interstate replacement bridge, but also on Portland's Rose Quarter project and on their I-205 tolling project. Right. But which is another interesting deep dive some other day. Right. But bottom line They did a lot of research, and because there's not a specific bridge proposal or project, Mm -hmm. they put together and said, if we were to do the CRC today in 2020, you're looking at 4 to $5 billion. Mm. You know, heart attacks (laughs) amongst legislators, how much money, and all of that. So we saw a back-and-forth discussion. Oregon felt, rightly or wrongly, that they got cheated by Washington State in the Mm -hmm. CRC because it was the Washington state Senate that pulled the rug out from under it and said, we're not funding our 450 million. So in the debate and discussion last fall, it was how much is this going to be? The consultant says, well, we don't have a specific project, but bottom line, a billion dollars or more from each state. Right. So we just saw in the Washington legislative session that ended this last Sunday, Two different proposals, one from the House part, one from the Senate that had between a billion and a $1.2 billion in it for the Washington State contribution. Right. Part of that. The Oregon legislature started a couple weeks after Washington. So they're behind us. 
they have had zero discussions about money from Oregon. Mm. And nobody has reported on it. Nobody said why. But my gut instinct is they were waiting to see would Washington actually deliver money or mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. before they began talking and putting money on the table. At the end of the day, the legislature's now concluded and there was no transportation package. Right. And therefore, there is not a billion dollars. And therefore, on the surface, you would say, oh, we dodged that bullet. Not necessarily. Right. <laughs> WSP's looking at, all right, a time frame of around 2025 to start construction. Start construction on what? They don't have Haven't a project. They don't have a yet. plan. And my perspective as a taxpayer and a citizen, they're sitting there and they're waiting and saying, how much money are you going to give us? Right. And then when we know the budget, we'll design bells, lights, and whistles and the most amazing thing or a pared down version to spend every single dollar you give us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, they're just patiently waiting at the end of the day, as Tiffany Couch revealed, $792 million could be a new bridge. Tied that to, well, could we really do a bridge for under a billion dollars? Mm-hmm. And so delightfully in the CRC discussion and debate in the community, we found an amazing bridge builder, Linda Fig of Fig Engineering, came out, got involved with our county councilors and some of our elected legislators, and she took a look at our regional transportation council that in 2008 looked at what the Portland Metro growth was going to be, right. and most specifically Southwest Washington, and said, when Southwest Washington hits a million people, you're going to need two new bridges and two new transportation wow. corridors. Not one, but two. Wow. And delightfully, the RTC and their staff said, tell you what, we don't want to tell you where it has to be. So they offered two options for each transportation quarter. Interesting. They showed two bridges to the east of I-205 and two bridge locations to the west of I-5. And they said, you can put them wherever you want. We're just showing you where you're going to need transportation relief. And they were absolutely right. So Linda Fig came to the community, looked at that 2000 RTC visioning study from 2008 and said, tell you what, in her mind, the most logical connection was 192nd on the east end of Vancouver. It's up on a bluff and you connect to 181st in Portland. Mm. 181st major north-south corridor in Portland 192nd is kind of our alternative north-south quarter. 164th, 162nd is kind of the main east one besides I-205. But that corridor was part of the RTC 2008 visioning study. Interesting. And so she said, great. She looked at it and she came up with the proposal, $840 million Hmm. fixed price contract. She said, you sign a contract, $840 million. I'll put together all the subs. We'll use Southwest Washington and Oregon firms, labor, materials, and all that. And if the cost goes over, we'll eat it. Wow. And if not, we'll deliver it under cost. And the taxpayers aren't going to be on the hook. Well, if you look at that reality for a major bridge fixed price and compare it to the CRC, it was right. going to be $900 million from Oregon and Washington. Right. $450 million each. You could have done it without any tolling, 
without requiring any money from the federal government would have been easy, cost-effective. It wasn't going to be ugly, but it was going to be utilitarian. Sure. But that, but it serves the people. Right. And that's wonderful. So those are two examples. Tiffany Couch showing the bridge in the CRC was $792 million, and then Linda Fig saying $840 million for that. Um, and then later on, because some of Portland was saying, no, 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 we right. don't want a bridge to 181st, amazing meeting with the mayors of Troutdale, Fairview, and Wood Village. Mm. I had the privilege of sitting in on it. It was a dinner meeting, two and a half to three hours. We talked. They wrote a letter saying, please, will you build an East County bridge mm. connecting Troutdale, exit 17 on Interstate 84, right. with Highway 14 in the Camas-Washougal area? Interesting. And we went back to Linda Fig and said, hey, <laughs> We can't ask you to spend oodles of time on this, but is it possible you could do this at the other location shown in the RTC visioning study? And she says, absolutely. Wow. And she said, the river's narrower. You don't have the high cliff that 192nd has. Right. And all that. She says, I could do it for around $800 million. Wow. Again, under a billion dollars. That was back, obviously, close to a decade ago, but from a taxpayer perspective, we could do this very cost effectively if we wanted to. Interesting. And, and so we, we could provide traffic congestion release. Obviously that was the East County transportation needs. Um, Kevin Peterson, an amazing traffic architect, transportation architect, uh, looked at all the CRC traffic needs, transportation numbers and all of that provided some amazing stuff. If you did an East County bridge, it would reduce traffic congestion on I-205 by up to 20%. Wow. Where's the headache on I-205? There are a couple of them, mm -hmm. but for Southwest Washington citizens, it's actually from the airport to just south of where 84 right. intersection runs in. That's a nightmare. 20% um, traffic congestion reduction. Kevin Peterson also looked at I-5 mm. in the I-5 corridor. What is the growth that ODOT and WashDOT project right. for traffic transportation in the area going ahead 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and whatnot? And he basically said, by 2050, you're going to need eight lanes in each direction wow. on I-5 to handle the expected growth. Well, that is for a western main traffic corridor mm -hmm. for transportation. The other honest option is why not build a bypass? Right. <laughs> Instead of just having two pipes for all the traffic to flow through, right. build a third pipe and a fourth pipe so that you can funnel everything and you don't need it. And so that's part of the discussion coupled with now <laughs> another aspect of this is that number one, Oregon passed a gas tax increase, a transportation package right. that asked ODOT to study tolling mm -hmm. from the border with Washington mm -hmm. all the way to where I-5 and 205 meet on the south end down near Wilson. Sure. Part of that was some improvements at the Rose Quarter mm -hmm. for citizens. Well, huge political battle, fur ball. When I-5 was originally created, it went through the middle of the Albina neighborhood. And so... There's big debates. You divided our community. We hurt. Understand. 
in the macro sense, there are an awful lot of people either from the Albina neighborhood or in the broader Portland green, we don't like cars that say, we don't want more cars coming into Portland. Right. We don't want to increase the vehicle capacity. Well, if you look at Kevin Peterson's study of the numbers saying, okay, right now we need five lanes yeah. <laughs> in each direction. And by 2050, you're going to need eight in each direction. As soon as you cross the river, you need more lanes. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, you've got a little bit from Hayden Island, Marine Drive, Delta Park, uh, Rosa Parks Way in North Portland. Right. That people in the neighborhoods and businesses are all adding traffic. Sure. And therefore, <laughs> in the morning rush hour into town, they're adding more. You clearly need, Kevin said, one to two more lanes mm-hmm. than whatever you have crossing I-5. And Portland doesn't want it. And so from a certain perspective, I say, I can respect that. Right. If Portland doesn't want more, why put oodles of lanes at all crossing Mm -hmm. I-5 as opposed to build a bypass? Right. And have the people the option, the ability to go around downtown Portland. That should make the people in North Portland very happy. No more hugely wide lanes. And for the grains, hey, (laughs) you're not bringing all that traffic congestion into Portland. Mm -hmm. Go around to the west. Um, So that's all part of the discussion. Another aspect, that Rose Quarter project, originally it was $450 million. Roughwag, half of that original $450 million was going to be used to create real estate. Right. Building two concrete lids over the top of I-5. Well, now... (laughs) Sad, but typical government, ODOT said, oop, we goofed when we created the original estimate. Instead of $450 million, it's now $795 million. Oh, wow. You know, oh, a 70% increase, but don't worry. We know what we're doing. <laughs> right. Um, and so part of the battle is that people are saying, no, we don't want two lids. We want one. We don't want wider lanes. We don't. At the end of the day, on the surface... They were adding no new through lanes. Right. And so you've got two through lanes. Of course, if you put three, four, five lanes in each direction across I-5, <laughs> you're going to have a traffic jam. And that's why in the CRC, for $3.5 billion, they only created a one-minute improvement in the mm-hmm. morning southbound commute. They got you to the scene of the traffic jam one minute faster, right. <laughs> and then you were stuck in traffic. So they didn't fix the problem. Sure. And it's supply and demand. Right. Absolutely. Wow. A lot to dig into there. (laughs) That was a a smorgasbord uh, for folks listening. So thank you so much, John. Well, I guess I just would love to cap off our conversation, um, you know, in your perspective um, moving forward. And this is a question I've been asking um, other folks um, on the show. You know, where do you see a lot of these things that you cover on a regular basis? Where do you see them going? And, and it could be, it can be a very 30,000 foot type answer, you know, it doesn't have to get into the weeds of each issue, but where do you see some of these um, p- perhaps going and what do you, what do you see changing or what do you see staying the same? Those, those sort of things. Well, um, and that's an amazing opportunity at the end of the day, the devil's in the details mm-hmm. and it's the special interests because for better and worse, WSP knows who's writing the check. Right. And they're the consultants driving the whole project. And they say, 
It's ODOT and WashDOT officials. <laughs> and of course, the ODOT and WashDOT officials are doing a lot on their own. And there's another discussion in the pandemic. Right. <laughs> how lack of oversight from elected officials over government agencies because everybody's staying from home. Mm -hmm. Meetings are no longer in persons. All of those conversations that can happen, whether it's RTC, the legislature, whatnot, are not happening or they're happening on a much different reduced level. But there's still a huge effort to raise money. Will it solve the transportation problem and the traffic congestion? Um, my gut instinct is no, it's not. Um, the effort, in fact, Oregon's Earl Blumenauer, Congressman, recently said in an interview with Willamette Week that uh, the bridge was not going to be built unless it had light rail. Oh, we're back to a light rail project in search of a bridge. Mm -hmm. And in the macro sense, especially in the pandemic, people don't want mass transit. They don't want light rail. In a longer run, a hundred years from now, we might have the population density that would support a lot more rail, subway, whatever on that. But people like their cars. The PEMCO study in 2018 said 94% of the people prefer to use their cars. And that was before the pandemic. Wow. The pandemic only made them want to use their cars even more because it's flexible and they know their cars safe for them, you know, from the viral standpoint and all of that. Right. But th th there's lots of money at stake. Um, the other angle on this for us here in Southwest Washington is our uh, CTRAN uh, is now beginning to build their second bus rapid transit line. Mm -hmm. They spent $50 million on the first one on fourth plane. They're doing the second one on uh, mill plane. They're starting that now and they've already got plans for a third one on 99, mm. 50 million a pop, 150 million. Ultimately one of the things they're looking at is running what they call bus on the shoulder and offer their express service on buses into Portland. They're already doing it on I-205. They'll probably right. go do that on I-5 right. to allow that. But again, if we look at the numbers of people using the CTRAN Express bus service, um, it's dropped by two-thirds, again, because of the pandemic. Will it come back? Yes. How much, how fast it come back? Don't know. Because right. once the pandemic's over, how many people are going to continue working from home? Sure. Instead of driving in, uh, needing the transportation, the transit, let alone their cars, Remains to be seen, but lots of moving parts, and therefore, stay tuned, folks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. I know everybody uh, listening really appreciates um, you coming and, and explaining a lot of these things and talking about um, just what it's been like to cover them and the perspectives therein. So thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate you uh, tuning in to this episode of Behind the Stories. We hope to do some more of these in the coming days. So uh, be sure to check back uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Google Music, um, uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts, wherever you you listen we'd love to see you there um, and this is also going to be on youtube in a video format where you can get it there and always for free just like all the amazing content at clarkcountytoday.com so thank you all so much have a great day